The festival of the epiphany of our Lord is a fixed festival. It doesn't mean that it's done unjustly or corruptly. A fixed festival means that it's going to fall on January 6th, no matter what day of the week it is. It's kind of like Christmas. December 25th is always Christmas. Epiphany is always 12 days later, January 6th. This year it falls on a Monday. We're celebrating it today. Epiphany has long been a part of the church's worship. In the early church, Epiphany was observed perhaps even more than Christmas. This was because while at Christmas, Christ was revealed to the Jews, at Epiphany, Christ was revealed to the Gentiles. And the church rapidly included more Gentiles than Jews. At Christmas, remember the angel said to the shepherds who were Jews, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people meaning the Jewish people. But at Epiphany, that good news of joy was extended to the Gentiles. That good news of joy, not to the Jews, in this case, to the wise men, to the Magi. Epiphany is often referred to as the Gentile Christmas, when, Christmas, when Christ was first made known to the nations outside of Israel. In Spain, for example, this day is the day of exchanging gifts. In many places in Latin America, gifts are exchanged on Epiphany, the 6th. And Christmas is a religious holiday to be spent with family in the church. In East Africa as well, in Ethiopia, they also celebrate Epiphany and not Christmas. Moving to this world, to the new world, we just kind of shook things up. Still, in some subcultures, and I remember in Wisconsin, stronghold of German Lutheranism, they put their shoes out on December 6th for Kris Kringle to come. They take up the notes and then they uh, will get their presents later. Looking at the story of the wise men, however, we know that the three wise men were from, were Gentiles. But how do we know that? Well, if you ask Garrison Keillor, Garrison Keillor, who is a storyteller for the radio show Prairie Home Companion, how many have heard of him before? Garrison Keillor. Always had, talked about a made-up Lake Wabagon days. And every night he would come on the radio of his program, he'd give news about Lake Wabagon. Well, this is what he writes about the three wise men. Because in this town of Lake Wobegon, there were only two churches, Lutheran and Catholic. So he likes to poke fun at both, but in a good-hearted way. In fact, I think he was Lutheran. Anyway, he says about the three wise men. The wise men only appear in Matthew, which is true, but they are the only characters that came from a great distance. So they are the only characters in the Christmas story whom we may think, perhaps, probably were Gentiles, and therefore conceivably the only ones who might have been Lutheran. <laughs> Some Bible scholars believe that they were. At least one of them was, because they came bearing gifts. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh, in case you weren't aware of this, is a casserole. It's a hot dish. 
It's made from macaroni and hamburger. It has some tomatoes in it. And it comes from the pronunciation of this word in the Middle East and also in the Midwest of hamburger as hammer and therefore myrrh. And that's the origin of the name. So we think that one of the wise men probably was Lutheran and may have intended to stop by a department store and pick up something expensive, some expensive gift like gold and frankincense, but his wife, who was a wise woman, said, no, take this. They'll probably be hungry. Take some myrrh. Just bring back the dish. So they might have been our guys, at least one of them. But seriously, how do we know that the Gentiles or that the wise men were Gentiles. There are several clues and indications in the story itself. First, they were called wise men from the east. And this refers most commonly in scripture to Persia, Babylonia, where royal courts included men who had studied the stars, science, folklore traditions, and other fields of learning comparing cultures. In fact, our word magi, from which we get the word magic, were astrologers and astronomers. Another reason the Magi ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Well, this indicates that they specifically were looking for the king of the Jews, somebody different from who they were, identifying themselves as non-Jews. So how would these Gentiles have known about a coming of a king of the Jews? Well, most likely from Jews who had been scattered throughout the Middle East in exile. For example, centuries earlier, centuries earlier, David, or Daniel, was taken into captivity in Babylon and had served in the royal court of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar made him chief of all the Magi. He was chief magician, if you will, in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. David worked with, Daniel worked with all of the Magi, perhaps instructing them what to look for in the sky. As well, there were other Jews who served, who knew the prophets from before. The manifestation of Christ to the Magi fits well with the prophecies of God's salvation coming to the Gentiles. As we hear in Isaiah for today, the light that God gives to Israel would attract worshipers from other nations. Isaiah says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness for the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So epiphany means that Gentiles now get to join in the worship of the true God. And we are Gentiles. Except for some out there I know have some Jewish blood in them as well. But we, for the most part, are Gentiles. Our ancestors were those people sitting in darkness who before worshipped spirits in a cave or trees or sprites in the forest. And we all have that background of animism in us as part of our pre-Christian 
history. That's why we knock on wood, if you will. That's why bells were rung to chase away spirits. That's why Christmas trees, we call them Christmas trees now, but they were brought in in order to preserve the life force in the tree during the winter months. But we lost that because the light has shined upon us. But they had no knowledge of that God who created them also loved them and forgave them by sending a Savior. But through the spread of the gospel, through the missions that happened after the first century that went out into all the land, St. Paul writes, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. So we learn some things about Epiphany that tell us about worship. The first thing that we learn is that the gospel of Jesus Christ turns Gentiles into worshipers of the one true God. In response to the gospel, we Gentile outsiders come into the household of God and know him and worship him as insiders. We're brought in to his family. And still today, the light of Christ calls from the darkness those people who are worshiping self-created false gods to find true hope and forgiveness only from the one true God of light. The second thing that Epiphany tells us about worship is that it is Christ-centered. The star of the Magi had seen, had, that they had seen went before them, as Matthew says, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The star points to Christ. They saw the child, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. The star stopped where Christ was, and where Christ is, worshiping happens. For us now, the church is the place where we find Christ in his word. We find it in his sacraments, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. We find forgiveness. We find life. We find salvation and strength to carry on during the week. The star appeared to the wise men, but it also appears to us through God's word. Worship is Christ-centered. That's why the whole church year revolves around the life of Christ, beginning in Advent, as we see the prophets talking and foretelling about the birth of Christ. Then at Christmas, we see the birth of Christ. In Epiphany, Christ's light shines forth to the nations. During Lent, we accompany Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. And during Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, we suffer along with Christ as we see him die for our forgiveness. And then the Easter, resurrection of the Lord, which means life forever for the believer. And then 40 days later, the ascension. And then Pentecost, where he pours out his Holy Spirit on all believers to be strengthened to live in this world or the promises and surety of salvation that he has accomplished. And finally, the church ends looking and longing for his return to take us home with him and finish what he has begun in Christ Jesus. The intention of the church year is to keep us close to him, to keep us centered on him. That's why we worship him with texts that we read every Sunday. Therefore, worship must be and delights in being Christ-centered. 
like the wise men, we have come to worship him, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. Third thing that Epiphany tells us about worship is that it is joyous. When the Magi saw the star, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew could have said, but didn't, they rejoiced. He could have emphasized it more by saying they rejoiced with joy. He could have added to that and said they rejoiced with great joy. But no, like an organist who wants to resound the sound in the church, Matthew pulls out all the stops and says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He really piles on the words to describe, in other words, the impossibility of expressing it. Worship, epiphany worship, is exceedingly joyous. A little word joy is also found in another word. Enjoy. Enjoy means participating in the joy. Taking part in the joy. And so now I ask you, do you enjoy worship? Do you enjoy worship? Do you participate in the joy of worship? Do you participate in being called and gathered in as God's people to receive the forgiveness of sins his body and his blood, his name upon your head in baptism? Or do you see it as a burden? Something that you have to begrudgingly do when you wake up on Sunday morning, even before your coffee. Maybe the coffee didn't turn out right, so you can't get to church on time. Maybe there was something else that's a little better to do on the Sunday rather than go to church. Has it turned into a convenient joy? Has it turned into joy when I feel like being joyful? Or does God's word of forgiveness and salvation move me to be joyful and give thanks to him every day, including Sunday? I mean, maybe it's an adjustment of our attitude. Maybe a different way of thinking is in order. Instead of thinking, do I have to go to church today? Maybe a better way is, you mean I get to go to church today? Wow, that's great. And on two different levels. Because here we still have the freedom in this country to go to church. We're not persecuted to the point that Christians are in other countries. But it's coming. It's coming. As the society becomes more secular... Christians are going to be put under the thumb. Do we get to go to church? You get to go to church. That's why in nations outside the United States, Latin America, Africa, India, you name it, people walk miles to come to church because of the joy that's filled their hearts through a message of a Savior and a God who loves them and doesn't enslave them to magic. We come to receive his forgiveness, to receive his life and his spirit, to be given sure hope to hold on to, something that a dark world cannot offer us, to be built up in faith, to be a part of God's family, his people. Think about it. That's wonderful. We enjoy being joyful. We can say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, 
Let us go to the house of the Lord. We have come to worship him joyously. So far we've mentioned three things. One, Gentiles now worship the true God. Two, our worship is Christ-centered. Three, Epiphany worship is joyous. Four, Epiphany worship is sacrificial. We express our joy by giving of ourselves. The wise men who brought gifts to Christ in worship, where it says opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were costly gifts, gifts appropriate for a savior, for a king. The Magi expressed their adoration, their worship, their thankfulness, their joy as they enjoyed giving them these gifts sacrificially. And so do we. Our worship is a sacrifice of self. We put our lives aside for a moment to be here. We consider this the place where we want to enjoy the joy and not the joy that we find in the world. We give of our time. We give of our offerings, of our talents, of our treasures in our worship life as Christians. Our offerings are expressions of worship, perhaps serving on the board or as an elder or on the altar committee or you name it. Giving of yourself not only supports the ministry going on in this place, it is the ministry going on in this place. So our worship is sacrificial. Not that our sacrifice could merit or earn anything acceptable to God. No. Our love for God is a response to his love for us, to his free gift of salvation. In fact, the only sacrifice that allows us to come before God to worship is the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Without his sacrifice, our praises would not be acceptable to him because we would still be in our sins. It's not about our praises. It's about Christ making us worthy and forgiven to approach the throne of God with worship and praise and joy that fills our heart in gratitude. On the cross, Christ Jesus bore your sins and mine so that we sinners now forgiven can come into God's presence without being struck down. As we remember the call of Isaiah, where he could not in the throne room of God speak to God or look at him until God took the burning embers in the fire and purified his mouth, forgave his sins. Then Isaiah could speak and stand before the Lord God. Christ is the great high priest who offered the one and all available sacrifice for sin by his own body and blood. Without Christ, there's no worship. Without Christ, there's no joy. Without Christ, there's no reason to be here. Without his death, death and resurrection, we still would be in the dark. There would be no star in our lives. But the good news is, that Christ has done all of this for us and makes us righteous before God. And through him, our worship 
is acceptable because we are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. This good news, this gospel is the star that leads us to Christ. And when we see him, our Savior and King, we too fall down and we worship him. Today, the Epiphany has told us several things about worship. That we as Gentiles now worship him. We are invited. That Epiphany it means worship is Christ-centered. That worship is joyous. And that worship is sacrificial. But perhaps there's even a fifth point. Our worship, sacrifice, and lives also shine as reflective stars in a world of darkness. Outside these four walls, there are those who do not see the light, who have no light in their lives. There is no joy that is eternal. There is no forgiveness. There is no acceptance. Through our worship, we are empowered. Through scripture study, we are prepared and strengthened to shine as lights. And through the sacrificial giving of ourselves, our time, and our talents, we help those around us as we show and share, yes, even shower them with his light. This is the epiphany of our Lord, and it tells us so much. And so today, brothers and sisters, like the wise men being led to Jesus, we too have come to worship him. Amen. Amen. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ or about Grace Lutheran Church, please go to www.gracealoneonline.org. You can email us at gracealoneonline at gmail.com.